Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. Hey, today uh, we're catching up with Mick. He's the Managing Director of AEV, or Australian Expedition Vehicles. He paid us a visit coming from the SHOT Show. He actually drove and overlanded himself uh, three or four hours to come pay a visit, to do a podcast with us all the way from Australia. And, uh, you know, catching up with AEV, Australian Expedition Vehicles makes the six-wheeled versions of the 200 series and uh, 79, 78, and 76 series. And they're actually hardcore in the overland space that are actually engineering design six-wheel vehicles uh, for a purpose. Uh, he's got a military background, and uh, we shoot the shit back and forth with George talking about the space, talking about the future for their company, and some projects up and coming with Phil Craft Survival. Um, so hopefully you guys like this podcast, and uh, yeah, let's kick it off. Nick, welcome to the podcast, you cunt. Thanks, George. <laughs> I'll, I'll call you George because George won't be offended when I call you a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> That's the uh, international uh, greeting. That's the uh, the greeting from uh, Australia. Cunt is like a term of endearment, I hear. Because yeah. they're useful. It's <laughs> 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 I'm a, I, always, I just did a post about it. My friend Tony Rokoff, uh, God rest his soul, but he was killed in a parachuting accident. But he was a, a, sec, a two commando. A part of the regiment, and uh, he used to always say that to me every morning. He'd be like, "Good morning, you cunt." And I'm like, "Huh? He must like me. If he's calling me a cunt, he must like me." Um, one, thanks for coming all the way out here, man. I know you drove four hours, damn near, overlanding. A little, a little bit more because I came from LA. I stopped at some. Oh, shit. did you come from LA? Yeah, I stopped at some shithole last night, and it was a shithole. So nice. I won't stay at a Highway Six again. Are they called? Are they? <laughs> oh. yeah. The fucking the, the walls are made of paper, I think. Oh, so you came straight from LA. You haven't even been to Shot Show yet. No, no, Shot Show starts today, but I'll head up there either tomorrow morning if we can have a beer tonight. That'll be good. But hell yeah, we'll head up there tomorrow. That's awesome, man. Well, thanks for coming out and uh, spending time with us. No, you're welcome. Thank you. Um, George is on the podcast as well. What's up, George? Hey, everybody. Um, so first of all, not a lot of people know um, about AEV. And we just want to tune people in who are listening to the podcast for the first time. Tell us a little bit about uh, AEV, Australian Expedition Vehicles, and uh, what you guys do. Yeah, we established ourselves because of a military requirement. However, uh, in Australia, we have a vehicle called a Nissan Patrol. So we're originally Australian patrol vehicles, but we've had to diversify so that civilians like our stuff so we call it expedition vehicles and i didn't realize there was an american expedition vehicle so we call ourselves aev which has caused a bit of a drama but we uh, <laughs> we've we've moved on and we're pretty happy to to be dealing in this space so i'm a mechanical engineer i spent 29 years 235 days in our army 15 of the those were as an infantry guy and then i transferred across and did an engineering degree and spent some time in various places uh, doing different types of things as far as <laughs> dealing with the stupidity of uh, soldiers and how they wreck equipment. Mm -hmm. And then my penance for the last few years was I was a senior engineer on a vehicle acquisition project for defence. And that is where I 
had engagement with some of the uh, tier one operators and what they particularly needed in a vehicle and where they wanted to get to. The company was born out of the lack of ability for non-big entities, i.e. Ryan Metals and all those type of companies who own all this capability and then you've got to pay for it. So what we tried to develop was an organic capability that was all about mobility and not so much about protection. So you guys were taking uh, the vehicles and was it a re-engineer? Because you started... You guys started the build-up from scratch, right? Yeah, the original concept was we. there were companies out there that are making six-wheel drives in Australia, just mainly for commercial purposes. They were carrying heavy weights and they needed extra capacity, that sort of thing. Uh, Land Rover or Jaguar Rover Australia at the time developed a six-wheel drive Land Rover for the special air service and that was a long-range patrol vehicle that they've used for many years. And that has since been retired. And in the space, they ended up with a very large vehicle in the um, the Supercat. Yeah, they call it the Sovnery Super I've Special. Used that before. Yeah, Special Operations Vehicle Nary, named after a guy who was killed in the Middle East. That hasn't proven to be as good as they thought because it's a it's big, and so mobility sort of went out the window a little bit. So the the intent was to have a vehicle designed around an operational viability period of 14 to 21 days so that they could live out of it for long-range patrols with enough endurance for fuel, water and ammo and obviously the big three to get them wherever they need to be. Um, so that the intent was not to redesign the world, but in the end we had to. So we've developed a six-wheel drive with another company in Australia who does a manufacturing called J-Max Off-Road Solutions, so they make the components for us. Yeah, if you if you know if you guys are just tuning in, you're not familiar kind of with the overland space. It, you know the origins, as I understand it, and this is just from my experiences and talking to smarter people than me. And it uh, the the overland movement really originates from. Uh, I mean, it's probably pre World War II outside of uh, you know a joint operation to do long range movements in Northern Africa, Europe, and everywhere else. Um, but if you look at the powerhouses in overland space, it's Australia, the UK, uh, South Africa, uh, just to name a few. And, you know, what, what are some of the, and we talked about this offline, but what are some of the reasons that Australia has to have um, specific use of like six wheel vehicles to have true overland capability? And, you know, we talked a little bit about you know, terrain obviously dictates that, but it, it's actual requirement in yeah, Australia. And the, the big one, obviously, that people are aware of, that Australia is quite a, a large space. It's a continent. But most people live around the periphery. So there's very little logistical support in the interior. So there is some, but not at a level where it's consistent and not at a level where it's viable to rely on it. So the, the true genus of it was you need to be self-sufficient for extended periods of time. So... It has been well and truly established, the military versions, but you know, supporting um, the agricultural sector within Australia has also led to a lot of the development of these particular four-wheel drive slash overland space. Yeah, because, I mean, if you can go in Australia and, and drive for days, if not weeks, in some parts of the country or the outback, 
and not see anybody, right? I mean, just indigenous populations. Yeah, they, it, it's opening up a little bit because of the capability of the vehicles that are out there and the cost of them is sort of coming down a little bit for the average person. But it is still uh, the tyranny distance, we call it, where you've got long distances between supporting elements, for want of a better word. So, you know, the towns that have got the size to support a, a mechanical business, for example, aren't that common. So there'll be very few people that could support you if something went wrong. Example, in the Simpson Desert, the closest town is Birdsville, which, you know, from one side to the other, it can take two days to go and rescue someone out in the desert. And he has his vehicle to recover is a man eight-ton truck. Wow. And it's quite a capable piece of kit. But at the end of the day, you know, people are waiting two to three days to be recovered. Yeah, so self-reliance is... Self-reliance is the key. So hence, a lot of effort goes into making sure reliability is key and making sure that, you know, the equipment that people put on there is robust enough that it can last at least that period of time. And, you know, there's been a lot of examples of stuff that doesn't last that long. I'll give you one shortly. Yeah, you know, I it this breaks out and, you know, this is a conversation that we've been having in the Overland space talking about, like, the survival rig, right? You know, an an off-road survival rig where people look at the rigs they have in America and, you know, it could be Toyotas, like Tacomas and Forerunners and, you know, flushing this Go Rig Challenge out driving to the Canadian border, which is only 1,400 miles, which, you know, isn't that far in the big scheme of things. There's a whole bunch of issues that we have identified, like one being payload capacity. I mean, if you have a payload capacity of of 1,500 pounds and you have a bumper set you know, rock sliders, skid plates, you've already exceeded that, that weight capacity. So when it comes to off-road, um, off-road driving, you're, you're definitely compromised in the, the original intent of that vehicle to be able to handle or however uh, evaluated. But then you look at miles per gallon, right? You, 13 miles per gallon now is 10 miles per gallon because of low capacity. And n- now you only have 15, 20 uh, gallons. So we had to look at the truck, which has 4,000 pounds of low capacity, and also has a now a tank capacity of 110 gallons, and so if you're if you're looking at any particular movements extended to be able to sustain yourself, like you would potentially see in Australia or you know Northern Africa or South Africa, in America we're very spoiled in being able to go pit stop to pit stop, but in regions whether in warfare or in in uh, and just life in general in Australia, you're not going to have that afforded opportunity. You're not going to be able to pit stop gas station to gas station because there's no uh, infrastructure. Yeah, plan, planning, you know, particularly for what we've been doing in Australia, planning routes and planning you know, fuel usage and known numbers is a big deal for us. Mm-hmm. So um, I always plan, particularly you know, for the six-wheel drive vehicle that we take out regularly, we normally take it's a it's a it's nearly 800 liters of fuel on the truck yeah and that lasts us you know 2,000 kilometers wow so we and that is what we plan often yeah we plan to be self-sufficient because you're not guaranteed to getting fuel at these places either yeah and are you guys carrying it in reserve like huge reserve tanks that tie into the tank or just extra um so what we've done is upgraded and it's a very big and it's normal procedure for most four-wheel drive vehicles is to upgrade the size of the factory tank. So, you know, for example, on the the 79 series, 
you, you double it to 180 litres instead of 90. So doubling the size of the fuel capacity on board is key. But for the design of our six-wheel drive long-range patrol vehicle that we've done, there is 400 litres of fuel that can be carried in 20-litre normal military jerry cans. Now, when you did your first testing, what was the vehicle? Was it the LC200 was your first testing? No, no. We use a 79 series. 79 so series. The, the base vehicle we use, because under the Japanese designation, that is a mill standard vehicle. So it's only manual. The 79 is. The 79 is. Yeah. If you, it's um, the one we look, saw in Libya all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah it is yeah. the most common vehicle um, in the Middle East. Used by ISIS. Yeah. <laughs> don't go there. It's a, it's a bad news story. So great, what were, great PR. So what are some of the things that you were kind of te- – were you pushing the limits while you were out there, kind of like testing everything? Uh, yeah. And the the big one with the terrain that we che- choose to go to, and if anyone wants to get there – map out and look where the Simpson Desert is. It's in the geographical centre of Australia. It's the largest continuous sand dune desert in the world. There's 1,100 sand dunes from one side to the other of varying sizes and and difficulty. But the terrain is constantly difficult for Mm -hmm. days. When you're talking days, it's four to five days, can be six days of constant driving, 20 kilometres an hour. It's very demanding on the vehicles. So the key componentry that we look at for reliability is obviously suspension and with the vehicles that we've designed that weight carriage thing that uh, Mike was talking about is critical and having the ability to carry that weight so we roll around at about 6.3 tonne in that military one because the the bins are all steel but the fuel and the water and the fuel uh, sorry and the rations consume a lot of you know, weight, mm-hmm. and then if you add ammo, we we have the standard military liners full of sand just to replicate weight. So we do test it to its limits, and we have to reinforce the chassis. Hence, we redesigned it. So we just cut the Toyota chassis away, and we use a completely fabricated double wall thickness chassis. So this was after the testing, or that was uh, kind of what you were testing well, during we, the time. We knew through experience that chassis crack out there and when i say crack i I have an 80 series personally that i dual cabbed and we'd taken across the desert a couple of times and we've cracked it and and it's all about that constant uh even at low speed it's just constant you know hard work the chassis flexing all the time so it cracked so we knew chassis were the key you know requirement to strengthen um with suspension, it was just finding the right system mm-hmm. that was able to manage it. So we use you know, Icon, which is a good American Icon Dynamic, good brand. Um, Kings, another brand. There's some other ones in Australia um, that are you know, reasonably cost effective, but they are still good quality. But yeah, suspension and chassis strength are the two critical requirements for carrying that much weight through those environments. So is, is that, you know, and this is something that's educational for me as well. When you look at a six by, which is what you guys specialize in, which is engineering a six uh, wheel vehicle that uh, could do it all, what is the advantage of six wheels over four for a lot of these movements? Well, the, the, the biggest advantage without getting silly is the ability to carry that weight. It's that payload. Well, it's ground pressure. It's why tracks are better than wheels in certain environments. Another set of wheels dispersing the load is uh, a good thing. And... So that carriage of weight is a the sort of main reason you'd go down that path. But the other advantage is the capability off-road. The vehicle's more stable because you're not, you know, you 
driven a four-wheel drive, fully loaded, they do get a bit of a sway up. So that is dissipated a reasonable amount. But the other one is if you go into areas where you know you can lose the you know a couple of wheels off the ground, you've got another couple of wheels finding traction. So that you can take a six-wheel drive places, you can't take a four-wheel drive. People that have got the six-wheel little I won't call them golf buggies, but you know the the oh, farm little, tractors, little gators. Yeah, little gators. Yeah. They know they can take those places. You can't take a four wheel gator. So yeah, the the six wheel drive just is an enhanced capability that value adds to just the weight carriage. Well, and and I when I look at the Toyota series, uh, you know, me and George and you know seeing uh, the different versions of Toyotas and Land Cruisers specifically all over Africa, and it's it's a uh, it's a bulletproof vehicle, right? It's got it's got the capability. It's the engines are bulletproof. I mean, you could just drive the crap out of them. But the fact that if I look at my own Forerunner or my own the company Tacoma, they don't have a great payload capacity. They just can't carry a lot. How much if I add two wheels and it becomes a six wheel vehicle? What what is what do you, what do you typically see in payload increasing? Is it roughly a thousand kilos per? Axle in- increase, okay. so it, it's reasonably substantial. That's uh, what's a thousand kilos? That's uh, uh, two point two, two yeah, twenty two hundred pounds. pounds. That's yeah. a big deal. Mm. I mean, that that's a lot of gear, a lot of equipment. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's, of- that's what it's about. Being able to carry it all in one mm-hmm. container, for one of a nice word. Yeah, trailers are de- bad. People who think towing a trailer in the you guys would know from your military background. Yeah, towing trailers in environments that are quite. Uh, Conducive to things going wrong. Yep. Just a recipe for disaster. Oh, so cumbersome and. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah but if you have to bug out quickly and you've got yep. a reverse, you you got a whole heap of shit show going on at the back. <laughs> so just trailers are not a, a plan. Yeah. Um, it, it's becoming a, a a bit because people want to multitask their vehicle, so they don't want to be living out of a a six wheel drive all the time. So there's a lot of energy in Australia going into off road campers, as they call them. So they're a trailer. But at the end of the day. If you are self-contained, you, you know, are able to manage the weight much better over six wheels. Hence, you know, towing a trailer is another axle. So hence you're carrying the weight over a, a trailer. I, so I, it's just bringing it all into one environment. You, you're living and eating out of the same platform the whole time. It's, it's a much easier way to do business. Well, I just think that it's, it's bizarre to me because, you know, I, there's probably a lot of reasons why it hasn't caught on. But if you look at the fact that in the overland, especially the American overland space, we think uh, adding more kit and everything else is a good thing. But we haven't dealt – like you put more bumpers on, you put skid plates on, you put rock sliders, you put a tent, you put a, a vault system. You just keep piling it on. But we haven't ever dealt with a weight. And so we haven't looked at the weight capacity. We just get overloaded and the vehicles become more dangerous. And so when I think all the way from the right spectrum, which is the defense application, six wheels makes, if I had a six wheel Land Rover in Afghanistan, our life would have been 10 times easier because having a four wheeled uh, Land Rover uh, 110 was impossible because when we had all the weight, I mean, our, our max speed was like, you know, 30 miles an hour, as opposed to, you know, you just add an axle, which obviously I'm making it sound easy, but that addresses a lot of the issues. And if we had... And if people are looking at self-sustaining, adding that that extra axle to your existing rig, I can, I, if I had my Forerunner and I was able to add twenty two hundred pounds of low capacity, that's a no-brainer. I'd be using that. But now I got to use a diesel truck 
that's the size of a diesel truck, you know, like a Mack <laughs> Mac truck. That's pretty much the genesis of why we went down this path from the military point of view because, you know, as you know from your own experience, everyone went to this protected mobility model. Yeah. You know, heavier vehicles. Mm-hmm. The MRAPs. The, yeah, and, yeah. The, the mobility went down or yep. the, and their maneuverability went down. Yep. They were great for protection, which is awesome, but some roles don't require that level, they, that clandestine role or, you know, the low signature stuff that you don't want to be seen out there. Yeah. So that's why the Land Rover and particularly the Land Cruisers now in the Middle East, but Land Rover, you know, Africa and all those places, very common. They're low signature, they don't stick out. Yeah. So that was another reason they wanted to go down that path because, you know, everyone knows what a Humvee looks like. Everyone knows what an MRAP yeah. looks like. So it became what is a signature with a, a six-wheel drive. It, it just enhanced that capability for them. Yeah, and the parts too. I mean, if you're in Africa, and I mean, every everybody drives Toyota everything or just a, a you know, variation. Yeah. And that logistical support aspect of it is key. You know, you, you can't support yourself and using indigenous support is probably one of the key reasons why some of the groups were looking, i.e. ISIS, and they bent for Toyotas. They were just easy to repair, oh, get yeah. parts for. So if the biggest terrorist organisation in the world is using them, I don't see why militaries don't. Yeah, yeah. They, they put like Zukias and Dishkas uh, on the back of them with uh, 10,000 pounds of ammo. And, <laughs> yeah, and It's still going good. It's still going good. Um what's the what's the challenges that you face when you're talking about adding an extra axle to the vehicle that you've experienced in Australia? Um, from the engineering side, I think because you know, of my background and what I've done in in my role in the green skin, it wasn't too difficult. And I'm not making that up. It's where do you start was the hardest part. And it, realistically, when I, we started, we didn't really want to go there because it costs money. Everything costs money and, and then to start through the research and development cycle and do it all yourself. And that's why I was lucky enough to partner up with um, J-Max Off-Road Solutions in, they were already manufacturing heavy duty axles and other components. So being able to dovetail into their manufacturing capability and impose my engineering capability, that yeah, it sped up the R&D cycle by about 12 months. Wow. Because okay. he was able to manufacture pretty much we built two prototypes within three months. Yeah, from way to go, and that's that's a good thing. From the subject matter experts who already went through all the R and D. So we, we knew we needed a heavy duty frame and all that. So you know, certainly welcome you guys to come and visit. But you'll sort of get to see what we're doing. It it's easy to manufacture, but it's not easy to try and retrofit. So we just went down the path of. We'll do it all. Don't worry about the Toyota stuff. We'll just find a tie-in point. Yeah. And from there, we own it. What's what's the build time on, on something like that? On a 79 series, it's 10 days. So you roll in with your Damn. brand new 79 series and 10 days later, you're rolling out with a six-wheel drive. In fact, we're just delivering one Wednesday Australian time. So they are, aren't difficult. The 200s take us a little bit longer because we only get the 200s in Australia. We don't get the Tundra. And it is a wagon, so we convert it to dual cab, which takes us about six weeks. So the build time for that is ten weeks, to eight weeks to ten weeks, depending on how quick the panel beater can paint it for me. I, I didn't realize this until uh, you educated us on it, but the the LC, the Land Cruiser 200 series, which is the newest 
version of the LC, isn't it? Yes. Or yeah, you get the LX570 over here, which is yep. the sister vehicle to it. Yeah. So that 200 series is the same chassis as the Tundra. Yes. And so when we, you know, we were just talking about it and just shooting the shit on it, but you could literally make a six-wheel drive. And I don't even want to say this because I'm afraid somebody out there is going to do it. And I want <laughs> we're already you to be we're the already first. down that path, mate. That's yeah. what that's what I'm here to do. Okay, I'm okay. trying to find you a know, frame so that we can get it over there to confirm and get everything yeah. done because you know, the cost of importing a Tundra into Australia is is dumb money, 120 odd k plus. And yeah, we, you know it's not viable to do that. Whereas we can do it to a 200 easily, but um, you know to confirm everything, we're only chasing a frame. I, I, so any breakers out there? I was going to say we need an investor or yeah, somebody something. just to come in just to give us a frame yeah. on the Tundra yeah. so we can work this out because, you know, my thinking is as this, you know, as the overland space evolves, uh, people are actually going to look at, you know, the, the I think the, the thinking was uh, it wasn't less is more. It's like the more shit I could put on this vehicle, the better it is. And when people stack the, the weight of these uh, on these vehicles, they completely impede the capability. So now you have to go back to the drawing board of engineering and go, are we building this right? Yeah, and I, the answer I, is no. Yeah, I'm unsure what's going on in the US motor industry, but Australia has really, uh, compliance is a big deal. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, you know, gross, weight, gross vehicle weights are a big issue now. So people are being um, fined or even... If they have an accident, insurance companies are not covering claims because vehicles are overloaded. Really? So there are statutory mm-hmm. limits that the manufacturers place on these things. I, I don't know how it works in here. Hence, you know, there we've done over seventeen of these vehicles now. So we're not we've got a few runs on the board when we've got a few of them out there, and it's because of they you know their weight carriage requirement. Yeah, it's well when I think about safety too. It, you know, I don't think there's a lot of checks and balances when it comes to. Hey, I got an off-road vehicle and it's way down, and I smash into a you know, school bus full of kids and just decimate it because I have you know five thousand pounds of kit attached to my vehicle. And, and the brakes are only you know the manufacturers are very good at what they do, but they they design them for the sort of their worst case scenario is you're at the maximum weight, so yeah. the braking is always affected. Handling, particularly on these um, independent front suspension yeah, cars, a, are affected. Yeah, I think some people don't realize how much. You know, you put all the stuff on your truck, bumpers, skid plates, uh, you know, roof. Winches. Winches. And, yeah. and it's like, oh, I spent all this money on all this cool stuff, but I didn't spend the money to get my brakes upgraded, suspension, my suspension upgraded. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, well, the vehicle is the start point. I think, well, the, what, what do you think it would take to break into the U.S. market? Is it just lack of education or uh, lack of... You know, I don't know the market well enough here to sort of be able to give an, a really informed comment. I sort of we we have a, a token American who works for us, an yeah. ex Marine guy that is a, a good operator, and he sort of gives us his version of the world. I th- because that requirement to not go great distances, you know, you might be out overnight or whatnot between spaces. It's manageable. Yeah. So you know, and, unless it became a requirement. In a, a long term, you know, you like you know, a, a long term patrol. For example, the Mexican border. I'll raise that as a yeah interesting comment. Yeah, but <laughs> definitely. You know, if that was a, a requirement for an operator to be in the car for days at a time without any support, that's the environment that we would be able to say that's where it's designed for. Yeah, Africa's a, a huge market. 
Yeah. And so is the Middle East. We're very cautious of that one. But Africa has a very similar terrain profile to Australia yeah. in regards to how they have to operate their vehicles and also the Indigenous support system. But when they're their issue, they want to carry more people so they can take them on safaris and make more money. So that, that's a slightly different version. That's an economic one. Yeah. Um, Australia, it's a, you know, a, a statutory compliance one as well as a real-world requirement to have a, a, a vehicle that can go for long distances without support. So, yeah, I, I'm unsure what the key driver would be to break into the U.S. market. I, th- I think, you know, this is just my... my, my uh bloated opinion on it on it i just think if it based on the the fact that when people invest in vehicles you know we we brief the whole thing like going to this canada i mean why am i going to canada well i'm flushing out a whole bunch of different problem sets that could be addressed with you know commercial business with uh just you know being creative. I mean, I'm building the guys right now in the shop building out like a compartment for the rear bed of the truck that could be replicated. And so when people invest in aftermarket, the aftermarket industry in America is huge. Oh, it's same as Australia. It's, yeah. it's probably the biggest segment of the four wheel drive. You're buying the cars, mm-hmm. it's cheap. Yeah, it's huge. And so my thinking is when when you buy a vehicle, if you buy if you're gonna spend the money, spend the money on the vehicle that has the, the potential capability in the worst case or maybe the best case scenario. So you're in a situation where, you know, you have to make it to the Canadian border. Would it, is it going to happen? Who the hell knows? But, you know, the, the whole premise, I think our business stands on it, especially at Philcraft, is that, you know, we're not planning for the best case scenario. We're planning for the worst case scenario. So if that's a difference between, you know, you not investing in a new, you know, badass Mercedes-Benz and instead of looking at an overland rig that's built right and maybe a six-by vehicle – then I would look at that. I mean, I would rather have the capability and the functionality than has the have the aesthetic, you know, than than throw the wrap on it and make it look cool at least. No, that's that's a good point. And there's a lot of guys spend lots of money on a vehicle that's not necessarily right for the job. Yeah. Um, hence the seventy nine in Australia is one of the few markets outside of the Middle East that's that gets this vehicle. Yeah. And it's because of its A reliability, but it it is robust. Yeah, and just what we're doing is enhancing the robustness as opposed to trying to, you know, retrofit stuff. Yeah, well, so, just, yeah, it's just such an easy solution to to increase the capability, and it's, like you said, self-sustain in one vehicle instead of having two vehicles, or separate vehicles, or having the you know towing behind something or just some other solution. Just focus on the vehicle you have and make it better. Yeah, and and. When I say capability enhancement, it, it is quantifiably better. One of the big ones, like we we're just discussing about braking, we we go to the level we replace the whole braking system. Essentially, we've gone to a hydraulic brake as opposed to a vacuum booster. Yeah, immeasurably better. At least one hundred and forty percent empirical data saying it is better. So stopping power, because we need it to stop at six ton. Yeah. And when it stops, it's got to stop. And you got six rotors that are have yep. the braking capability. Correct. And across. then obviously getting the brake pressure to all those rotors and calipers. You can spend upwards of five to six grand on upgraded rotors and upgraded calipers. We spend a thousand dollars on a hydraulic brake booster. Yeah, it's it's easy money. That's so a- it's where you spend your money. And getting back to the point you said, what what is a improvement that's going to make the vehicle better as opposed to a bit of bling hanging off the outside. Yeah. Now, now talk a little bit about, 
you had mentioned the laws are changing in Australia with petrol versus diesel, and yes. it's it's really affecting the market and and uh, the industry over there. Uh, pe- yeah, petrol vehicles are particularly in the four wheel drive space. They're there, but they're not a, a well liked vehicle. Um, but what's happening is obviously Emission Australia signed up like all the good countries to these emission targets and the rest of it, and part of it was to reduce uh, diesel emission. So there'll be, I'm pretty sure it's 2020, there'll be no petrol diesel, sorry, there'll be no diesel passenger cars in Australia. So the commercial vehicles like the 79 will remain as a diesel as long as it can maintain some level of compliance. But in the 200 space, it'll only be petrol. And you have to get an agriculture tag or something like no, that? No, no, you can buy them because um, they're a light commercial. So it just means, you know... You, Licensings is different. Yeah, no, not necessarily licensings. It, it, I think it's more insurances. Yeah. So, you know, Australia, it's compulsory to have insurance. Well, I, my thinking is, it, it's, you know, and this is common throughout the world, is they are facilitating the epicenter, the urban cities. But I, I can't imagine that uh, petrol... Uh, fuel gasoline is is uh, prevalent all over the remote areas of Australia. It, it is there, and I'm, I won't lie and say that. <clears throat> excuse me, it isn't because motorcycles, chainsaws, all these farm implements yeah. require petrol. They have to have it. They have to have it. it. What it does, it doesn't last as long as diesel in tanks. It goes yeah. off, so you have got to put some additives in it and blah blah blah. Um, the the big win over diesel that everyone still hangs on to is the fact that it is. sorry motors anyway they're a closed system so less external influences can get into them yeah so you don't have a spark plug lead that can fail or or distributor cap that can crack all those sort of things are are taken away so they're they're a much more reliable engine system yeah than a petrol and that's pretty much why it's such you know the africa and these large continents that require that reliability have maintained diesel as okay. a key requirement. So you think it's a necessarily a bad thing or is it, I mean, to the industry space, how is it going to affect you guys? Um, I, I don't think it's going to affect me in what we do too much because militaries either use diesel or JP8 or, or some other derivative. So the diesel space is always going to be part of it. I don't really see it affecting what I do from the business perspective. It might affect what customers purchase. So. Yeah, I, like everybody who goes overseas in the, with the military or, or whatever comes back and they're like, man, why why don't we have Hiluxes? Like, why don't we have diesel Toyotas? Because they're reliable in the field. We've used them on patrols. I mean, they're just amazing vehicles. And then you get here and it's just, it's there's no workaround for it. I mean, even I luckily live in a county, Yavapai County, where there's no emissions for diesel. So I could have a, a delete on my vehicle and no emission controls yep. like DEF and all this other stuff. And so, uh, when you're looking at, uh, exporting Africa is a huge consumer of, of all this. And there's no rules for regulating petrol versus diesel Correct. in Africa yep. because and they don't give a shit. They're exactly. And they're, <laughs> they're very much down the diesel path because hey, it's, it's crude it, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It is. And you can run diesel. It doesn't have to be a refined product. You can run it on, um, a, fish and chip oil i don't know what you call it here but (laughs) there's some bio diesels as they call them yeah 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 all all these things exactly all these things can be made to run in a diesel system so diesels have a a lot of benefits yeah in in particularly they are 
you know, that talkingness of a diesel motor compared to a petrol. Petrol will get up to 100k an hour faster, but will it manage a sand dune better than a diesel? Probably not. Yeah. That low down torque that diesels get is much better. Yeah. Uh, talk about the, uh, can you talk about the G-Wagon thing that you told us? Uh, is that classified? I don't know about classified, but it's, um, it goes back to a purpose-built vehicle. It, yeah. it is not a purpose-built vehicle for Australia. It's, yeah. it's great in Europe. The Canadians have got them. Mm-hmm. It's good for those environments. Um, they're not sold in countries where it's hot for very good reason. They don't like the heat. Um, yeah. Electronics are, are susceptible to that type of environment. Yeah. So, how long was that trip? You said uh, that trip was. We, we did several of them. So, one of the trips that I was just alluding to, um, we were doing a midsummer test through the Simpson Desert. So. The ambient ground temperature was 73 degrees. The vehicles were going to limp mode. 73 degrees. What what is Celsius. So I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Fuck. That's like a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. And and that's that's because we had to take... That's real hot. Oh, very hot. We had to take ground temperature measurements. And the vehicles would go into limp mode because the electronics in the car are very susceptible. So So when they're going into like overheat mode, the whole system would shut down. It's a protection system that they have built into, say, you know, if it gets to this sort of thing, slow down, stop, do whatever. Um, It'd throw up fault codes and we couldn't move. So we're trying to talk to the technicians in Germany and trying to find a solution. So we ended up dragging that G-Wagon over 1,100 sand dunes. 1100 so, sand dunes. There was a, it's a lot of sand dunes. So the guys who were on the trip know exactly what we're talking about. It, it was hard work. We worked like proverbial miners for a few days trying to get it out of there. You said it was a three day trip just to get to the start point. Correct. So we left, you know, the, the start point was Melbourne, which is at the bottom of Australia. We had to get to Alice Springs, which is the center of Australia, and it's a three day drive oh at 110 kilometers an hour. So open set, desert? Uh, it's pretty flat. Yeah, it's you know for it's 163 degrees Fahrenheit. There you go. That's that's ground temperature. The ambient air temperature was about 48 right. degrees. It wow. was hot. That's it, insane. It is insane. And then trying to sleep at night was even worse. And then we had to do a repair at where we worked all night, and it was you know sweating really badly. So I'm not a fan of uh, G wagon. Put it that way. Yeah. So you know what's interesting is your. Your country in the back country, the, the outback, is it still outback? Still called the outback. Okay, since Crocodile Dundee, I yeah. just remember. Uh, Shh, <laughs> don't say shit like that. <laughs> That's not a knife. This is no, a knife. This is exactly right. I'll um, say that one more time. He's a fucking it. national hero there, isn't he? No, he's he wasn't even Australian. He was, no. <laughs> he's actually quite popular, but uh, for a different reason. Really? Uh, he's, a, he's a comedian. And a very good one at that. And he he was a, a fucking comedian? Oh, wow. a, a very Look up the Paul Hogan show. Google it and see what you come up with. Paul he, Hogan. He had a couple of great characters, Arthur Dunger and, and uh, yeah, a couple of... I loved... Dude, I love that dude. Do it. And Paul, you'll, he's you'll an Academy it. Award for Best Original Screenplay, and he's a... Damn, he's a comedian. He's a comedian. The Paul Hogan show, classic Australian humor from the 70s. Yeah. But let's not digress. Um, <laughs> my favorite thing was when he threw that can of like uh, that that whatever it was it was like a can of beanie weenies and hit that dude in the head I'm like Australians can do that those dudes are badass not, 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 he was my hero not permanently I can do it with a full can of beer that's about it you mean he wasn't your hero as a kid no <laughs> you, he was a good bloke but uh, I don't know about a hero more of an anti-hero oh man that's awesome um, 
tell us about this uh, organization that you guys are starting out. And because we were going to be part of it in August, we didn't have the time, but mm-hmm. we're actually thinking about coming out. Actually, we want to come out uh, in May for this uh, trip. And this is the recce for the the main vision of the, of yeah, the trip. Yeah. So what what we're looking at is like all the coalition countries. Most of us have had issues with our veteran support networks, particularly once they separate and no longer under you know, the watchful eye of the system. Yeah. They sort of lose their way. They become entangled in the bureaucracy of, of getting assistance and all that. And then when they finally get there, then they're isolated because they're either medicated and they're dealing with a bureaucracy that's not necessarily sympathetic to their needs. So what we've looked at, and I've actually... I'll be a bit circumspect about how I state this. Australia is almost dysfunctional. There are so many disparate veteran groups all vying for the for dollars and all that that we, we didn't even want to try and do this in Australia. So my sister, Deanne, who lives in San Francisco, has, uh, through our company here, established a not-for-profit. So all the, the documents are filed, all that sort of thing for the tax requirements. But what we're looking at is... Uh, it's, we're calling it the International Veterans Expedition Program. So we're looking at taking veterans from Australia, UK, Canada, US on expeditions, whether they be in the US, Australia, um, overseas, whatnot, but getting them away from their environment that they're in. And it's not it's not going to solve any problems. It might you know give them a respite, but it, hopefully what we're trying to do is get them back to a small team environment, establish networks again because most of them become isolated outside their groups that they used to hang out with. You know, they lose contact, they, you know, become belligerent, medication affects them, all those sort of things that we all know about. And that, so we're just trying to bring them to a space where, A, they get some enjoyment out of it, B, hanging around with blokes that, you know, used to do the same stuff, talk the same shit, have a few beers and see some good things that not many people get to see. But again... The outcome is to separate them from their environment and look for ways to reintegrate them into a small team and then establish a small network again so that you know, common shared experiences are all great, but at the end of the day, people who separate from military, as you guys know, tend to either lose contact with the guys that they're hanging with, catch up with them 10, 10 years later and you're talking shit again, but yeah. it's that, you know, that intervening time, trying to give them some more tools. Yeah. They need. I mean, this is a world, obviously, a world problem between the we call it five eyes, all the all the countries that operate together. And I mean, we we've been at war the same same period of time, which is going on eighteen years now. It's like the shit never stops. So, having a place, I like how you said, you know, having a place that could reestablish connections or networks is important Mm. because you know nobody even knows a fucking start point. I mean, and and that's it. And unfortunately, we all know guys that have you know, taking their lives because they've, they've lost contact and they're outside the system and, you know, no matter, with all good intentions, everyone's saying stay engaged, all that sort of thing, but um, it's difficult to re-engage them. So one of the things that we're looking for, particularly within the US, is an organisation to partner with that can identify people that would benefit from these types of activities. You know, there's no, not asking for funding, it's more putting forward the people that would benefit the most from it. Yeah, I think we we were talking about using uh, um, Task Force Dagger, yeah, Task Force Green Dagger. Beret Foundation, and then there was there, there was another one for special operations. It was the CXC. Uh, uh, um, I forget. 
Well, you, you mentioned like soldiers. I mean, I mean, I've worked with the Canadians. I worked with Australians. I've not been able to work with the Brits, but I mean, a soldier is a soldier. Oh, exactly. I, mean, I, I mean, you we you get us in a room and we're we're talking shit, we're busting balls. I mean, it's it's a great it's a camaraderie that you know you can't find anywhere else. It, exactly. I mean, and it's that's why we all hang around it so long. Yep. And very difficult to you know, I was institutionalized thirty years. It was a long time. Oh, yeah. it, it's taken me a long time to decompress myself enough that I'm not so anxious about things. Um, but when it comes to you know, I was just saying before, we've done this trip over 10, mm-hmm. nearly 14 times now. Yeah, it's it always is, like, It is my therapy. Yeah, like, you always got to find it like how to like relax and not be so yeah, like uptight. It, there's no it's, phones. It's there's hard no, to do. There's no one busting your balls about exactly. doing anything other than dig the shit pit, yep. get out there and have a crack and then get to see some good stuff that not many oh, yeah. people do as well. So that's the intent. Um, you know, there are some risks involved, particularly for some of the guys that are a little bit worse off than mm-hmm. others, particularly... Um, some of the psychiatric outcomes so we've had to look at ways to risk mitigate that stuff but you know they're all easy things yeah it's getting getting the right people some assistance and there's so many people out there and you know where do you start that's that's where we're at at the moment it is a we're chewing we're we've eaten the elephant at the moment the coast to coast is the other one coast to coast okay yeah that's right that's another one um so you know tell us about one of the trips that we were planning on doing which is kind of like the recce for the, the actual um, trip that would take place, which is a 14-day trip, right? Yep, that's right. So the distance is our enemy, but mm-hmm. if you think of uh, like, like my miles to kilometres stuff is pretty ordinary, but what we've got is to get to the start point is about 1,800 kilometres to start. So that's two days and a fair bit of that is cross-country driving. Mm-hmm. And then for that, will they like how many of the uh, six wheel vehicles? We're, so I'll go back and sort of put it in the start. So we're looking at taking three six wheel drives, uh, one of the prototype coiled versions of a military vehicle that we're looking at, and another support vehicle. So we're looking at probably five or six vehicles on this trip, um, with you know two to three blokes per vehicle. So we're looking at you know the first you're driving for 12 hours a day i i'm i don't drive at night i've given up doing that everything bad that's ever happened to me has happened at night so we try to stop early enough where we can put a fire and have a couple of beers and cook some good food and talk some shit and then that's the plan but there's some good you know things to see um particularly you know airs rock uluru those sort of things for the visitors but from the desert point of view it is I've done it so many times now, I'm not lying. It has changed every time. It's, I'll do it any day of the week. If someone said we're going tomorrow, I'll be on it. So, I did a, uh, a training exercise. My first trip to Australia was with the – we worked at the uh, the Marines, and we were up in uh, Rockhampton area. Yep, Shawwater Bay. And, uh, and driving out there was like a 12-hour drive out to the training site and then setting up and then with all like the – the animals and the insects that could kill you like in one bite. Oh, you guys but the best part of that trip was the nighttime yeah. and looking up at the stars and, oh, it was amazing. Mate, it, it is not bullshit. There is no ambient light out there. The no. stars are brighter. The nights are better. Um, if you, you know, if there's no moon, it's even better. It is awesome. So nothing, we call it the bush television. I don't know what you guys call it here. Sitting oh. around looking at a fire. Ranger TV, they call yeah, it. So yeah, Ranger TV. <laughs> Bush TV. So it, it is, you know, it's getting back to the basics, I suppose. 
and everyone identifies with it. Nothing, I don't know anyone that won't sit around a fire with a beer or hot chocolate, whatever you want, and uh, look at a fire. Oh, and that's talk the best. Shit. When I first uh, moved out here at Prescott, we did a, we just went out to one of the uh, public rain, uh, lands out here, and we just packed up the truck and went, and then built a fire and sat around for like three or four hours that night, just yeah. bullshitting and I talked. Did. It was great. And that's that's what a lot of guys need to offload their. You know, oh yeah, demons over mm-hmm. over a couple of things because no one judges anybody when you're all together. Everyone's had some issues that they've had to deal mm-hmm. with, so people at least get it. Whereas I think most the guys who have the serious major problems are all isolated and they they don't think they can talk to anybody. So hence we can offer a, at least a respite. For oh a yeah, bit. definitely. That's the cunning plan. What's your what's your guys's relationships with the uh, indigenous uh, Aborigines? Ah, in, that's in a good Australia. one. You we. We have a very good one, particularly. Um, I won't. I have an indigenous heritage, but it's not at the forefront of my being. But through that family connection, we have access to because within, unlike the reservation system you have here, there's indigenous land councils, so they have jurisdiction over certain environments. Mm-hmm. So we have access to indigenous land that other people do not get. Really, consistently, they've closed access. Pretty yeah. much. So we have access to it. And it's not access to be belligerent and go and do something stupid. Yeah. It's just transit access. Yeah, travel access. Re- yep, yeah. respect the environment. Don't you know? Don't do anything we're not allowed to do. Uh, and that's why we continue to be able to access the places I can. That's, in, that's crazy because, I mean, if you look at Australians, Indigenous, they're the oldest people and living in the – I mean, there's yeah. some habitats that are just – And I'll be honest, um, we do go through a couple of communities – and it is quite confronting. The level of poverty is insane. Yeah, you know, oh, I know, yeah. I know uh, and I've watched some documentaries about the um, the native people of America and how they're living at the moment and all those sort of things. It is it, is beyond third world. Some of the places these indigenous people go. So it is a bit of an eye opener. There is some education as part of it. It's not just drive, drive, drive. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, that it opens perspective up as well and and gives people a different understanding of the issues and they are complex yeah oh absolutely it's, yeah it's always different when you get that first-hand account and it's yeah. like you see the truth and it's like oh i did not know that oh uh, yeah no, in, so. in, in australia and one of the, the terrible aspects is oh they get stuff for free you know, blah, blah. there is a segment that do that but the the people that do require it the most are not getting anything and that's the dysfunction of the system but yeah that's that's a completely separate issue but i suppose to answer your question mike originally it, it is through relationships and, yeah. and then doing the right thing that we continue to get access. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And you said you got some hair, some, some. I oh, yeah, Well, it's my grandmother is Aboriginal. Really? Yep. But that's. That's really rare. Uh, well, it? No, it's not rare. It's not rare in my family. All my brothers and sisters are yeah. the same. They identify. You can, I suppose, I don't look at that aspect of, you know, your one quarter, one eighth. Yeah, yeah. That, that's irrelevant. I don't identify yeah. Um, because I don't see it as value-adding to me as a person. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that's that's pretty much my reason of I don't identify as far as our family goes, but I don't, yeah. I'm not out there saying I'm in. Yeah, because you don't we, want the, the Well, ga- we are registered as an Indigenous business, by the way. Yeah. So, and that's because, you know, it, you have to prove it. It's not as if it's, oh, yeah. You, yeah, it's not a check the block. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, it is almost a, um. It's very confronting for some people. So hence, I don't even put it out there. But you know, yeah. just to 
value add to this conversation. Or that I, well, I think it's that. very interesting to the story too. I mean, even I mean, we're a minority veteran-owned business, but when you in the big scheme of things, you know, minority in America is not a big deal. But being in you know having uh, Aborigine descent is a big deal. I would assume in Australia more so than it is here as a minority because we're a we're full of migrants. I mean, oh, it's literally well, as a migrant. Australia is the same as well, mate. And yeah. that's, that's the problem. You've got a, a fairly vocal segment of the community, the taxpayer, which are the people who rightly should say what's going on, but there's a misinformation about it as well. You know, they don't get free money. They yeah. don't get this, that, and the other. They get services, but there's a good reason they should as well. They are living in some pretty ordinary conditions yeah, in absolutely. certain places because yeah. they were made to move off their homelands. Yeah. And that's no different to the, the native peoples here. Yeah. So yeah, it yeah. is a it is a complex issue and the, the issues of alcoholism, drug use, you know, sexual violence, all these things are now endemic. Yeah. And there's you know, it is a, a social issue that is gonna take generations to rectify. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And um, yeah, the, we, my brother is a you know, highly qualified legal guy. He was part of an organisation that was trying to change the constitution to recognise Australia because they're not recognised in the constitution of Australia as the first inhabitants. Oh wow! So that still hasn't happened yet. You know, two hundred years down the track. Yeah. So it is a very contentious issue. Hence, I try to stay away from it. I like to be the grey man. Yeah, I'm sure it's highly political and very, highly, yeah, highly uh, toxic in some some senses. That's a good point too. Yeah, I you know when it comes to. Uh, uh, Australia. I, I, I've never been. I've been invited several times and I hope to get there. Yeah, you were well, invited last trip. You I know. Did your big sook. I was a big cunt. Oh, <laughs> I, I called you a sook. That's even I worse. Know. <laughs> I know. Like, fuck. Remember, a cunt's useful. Sook's I know. <laughs> when, May is the winter time. Uh, it's coming just out into It'll winter. It'll be cooler. It, oh, yeah. You don't want to do the desert in summer. Oh. In fact, they close it off. Yeah. Um, we were able to get access because you can come through a certain way. Um, yeah, even very recently people have died out there. It is still that isolated yeah. and that difficult of a terrain to get access to. Um, but, yeah, summer's just not good. The w- reason wintertime, it's still 30, 40 degrees out there in winter, yeah. but night times are nice for beer and fires. Hell, yeah. You know what we should get? We should get Scott Brady to go. Oh, yeah. CEO. That'd be like a whole... Yeah, the owner thing. of Overland Journal. He's a good dude. He's a, yep. a personal friend. Yep. And uh, he'd be great because he, he's such a good writer that... It, when when I think of something like this, like the video only does so much. You have to be descriptive in mm-hmm. the experience that this would take, and it's something that needs to be in you know Overland Journal or, or his magazine because it's something that's yeah. so substantial. I don't, you can't segment it into a one minute fucking highlight video and expect no. to get some you, understanding. We try, but it doesn't work. Yeah, um, exactly. But I suppose the key for all of it, and because you know any good operation starts with the planning. Yeah. And these things take planning. You can't oh, just yeah. wing it. You can't throw shit together. No, no. We, it, Will you tell me how many slots I got and what uh, I need I'll, to do? Well, I'll, I'll throw <laughs> two fucking, slots at you. Okay. So there's awesome. done. Georgia Locked cut in. off the roster. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone has to stay here and run the company. That's, yeah. true. That's true. I've been there twice. I'm not going to be greedy. Make the money. Oh, you have, you have been there, yeah. huh? Okay, you're definitely not going to. Yeah. But he only went to the shit parts. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the six-wheel version, we had some, uh, I mean, we were throwing around some some things. And I think it could be done, but you know, being that the Tundra is the chassis that's the the Land Cruiser 200 series that you already do, it wouldn't be that difficult to mock one up here and to actually get it done. What what would be 
and I, I don't even want to. I don't know if I should ask this because I don't. I don't want it to come off like a marketing uh, scheme. But what would be the estimated cost for doing something like that? Uh, well, we've already worked that out. It's around thirty k US. That's not bad. Mm-mm. You that's figure not, if you that that's like, yeah, that's delivered to your door and that's fitted here. You know, might, might be a little bit more, but I suppose if there was enough of a market here, then establishing a business to do it is is quite straightforward. I think I think there is a market here. I, so this is what we opened up. Is you literally could use our shop free of charge. We just want to we want to brand the experience. Like I just want to show people. Well, I reckon if you move to Las Vegas, we'll do it tomorrow. Are you, Vegas? Are you going? Are you putting your shop in Vegas? Are you doing something? Uh, only because I've only been there once. I'm heading there again. Oh yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Vegas is a shithole. Yeah, I know. I it's such a, it. Have you been? Have you seen the hills around here yet? Oh, I, in fact, I, was, I must say it was probably one of. I wished I'd got a more powerful vehicle because it was awesome to drive. Um, up through uh, Quarterite or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. It was awesome up through there. I mean, up beautiful. through that mountain. The building next door is available. Just same. It's the same as this. Well, so you just use ours rent right free. Yeah. You do a ton of yeah, rent free. No, no, seriously, it isn't difficult. Like we, the kit, we've developed it like this as a kit on purpose so that it can be exported. Yeah. Um, you know, the US is. It's about volume in the US. Australia, we can manage at the moment. Um, if we were told we had to grow quickly, it, it would be difficult. So I suppose all I'm saying, can we do it? Yes, we can. Is it easy? Yes, it is. When can we do it? As soon as you tell me you've got a Tundra frame. Um, but, you know, how it goes after that, I suppose that's a, that's a different kettle I of fish. I can get a Tundra frame. I, I got one. I can get one. Roger. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm excited because I, I think – if you think about overland space and how we've been talking about it and breaking stuff out and this, the conversation, the evolution is this, you know, I've driven in the, the, the different six wheel versions, the labs, the cats, um, and they're heavy and cumbersome, but to have the ability to increase payload on the standard models, I mean, the Tacomas, the Land Rovers, the Land Cruisers, and the, the forerunners just to be able to increase that capacity. And it's just, the, the the possibilities are endless, and nobody's fucking done it. Because you know why why nobody's done it is because they don't have the engineering down, so they don't have the. Well, it's becoming very common in Australia. So yeah, we we've you know we have federal approval system and state based ones as well. But the federal approval system, we are up to ten federal approvals for these vehicles because we're engineering them. Yeah, we're not just saying they can do it. We've got all the empirical data, the finite element analysis all the stuff that supports the engineering technical data pack. Yeah. And that's why we're able to do this. Um, so we've done – so through J-Max Off-Road Solutions, he's got Hilux already done, uh, upgraded axle housing for Hilux, uh, which I think fits in the Tacomas. Um, it, it's about beefing them up. Yeah. So there, there are limitations and, you know, braking, upgraded brake boosters and upgraded other bits and pieces to enhance the suspension. Suspension's one part of the solution. Yeah, it's not the solution. Yeah. So, it is a the four wheel drive overlanding communities love suspension. They'll spend I was uh, four times the budget on suspension and forget that their brakes are bugging. I was yeah. reading your I'm doing research before you got in here, and you were talking about how on your semi nine you had the uh, leaf springs first. Is that what you guys started out with the leaf springs and then you figured? So yeah. How did you figure out well, what was the testing? What was like the final? Well, the, the first trip we did with leaf spring. In fact, we did two Simpson crossings with the leaf sprung version of the six-wheel drive. 
they don't articulate well, mm-hmm. so they're very uh, limiting. But they, when you talk about mass, the mass of a spring, as in a coil spring, compared to the mass of a leaf mm-hmm. that's able to manage that same sort of weight. So we, we've gone, we've dropped three, four hundred kilos in steel just oh, by nice. going to yeah. going to coils. And you said uh, like a, uh, you get that better uh, articulation. Correct. With the yeah, coils, coils are, are much better off road than leaf. And that we were talking about earlier, you said uh, the, the leaf was that making the uh, chassis that was breaking the chassis. Oh, it, it causes you know there's so much stress goes yeah. through those points because the leaf is very rigid. Mm-hmm. It doesn't you know it disperses the weight over the length of the leaf, but there's two connection points, so they tend to be very um, very limiting. Oh, okay. But from a you know, Leafs have been around since horse and carriage days, mm-hmm. so it's old technology. Oh, the yeah. coils that are available now with variable rate coils, so you can have a sort of basic payload of 300 kilos up to 700 kilo, all yeah. on the same coil. That's yeah, so we have like a, a, the Icon suspension we have on ours is it's fully adjustable. So yep. oh, that's that's in a, the shock absorber. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but in the coils, there's variable rate coils, so you can they they start off really spaced at the bottom and mm-hmm. then they're really tight at the top so when they compress oh, okay. the more weight you put on them the better they are nice so they're, they're, there's a lot of technology going on with suspension but yeah remote reservoir shock absorbers are the pinnacle of that level of suspension and hence i'm uh, a huge fan of icon and kings and all those radflow or another company that just started to get some traction in australia with that remote reservoir shock absorber just that ability to adjust as you said george is pretty important yeah, we're big fans of. We run Icon all of our off-road rigs and got good relationships with them because they they're they're willing to listen. You know, they're not so big that they just blow you off. Yeah, it is. Still, I believe it's still a little family company. Yeah, 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 so, yeah absolutely. And I think they just supplied the Ford Raptor program. Yep. Yeah, and so. I, Icon, if you're listening, uh, I have a '97 uh, Land Cruiser that would love to have your uh, <laughs> system on there instead of your old Emu. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Old, so, man, no. old Man Emu. Old Man Emu. <laughs> OME. So, Mick, it, it, let me ask you this: If you had to choose, like, if you had one vehicle that you had to use for the apocalypse, like shit was a big disaster and you had one survival rig and it was built out what would it be it's definitely the 79 six wheel drive if you have a look at our latest we've just put the auto in it so we've dropped the 200 series gearbox in that vehicle through and it is you know a different car to drive but as far as robustness it's easy to repair easy to maintain you know its ability to carry weight is is huge What's the what's the cost of that vehicle starting out scrap from scratch? I know um, it's fairly expensive. Um, Australian dollars to buy them off the shelf. You're looking at seventy k. Yeah. Just for the the base vehicle, and then the conversions fifty grand Australian, so thirty grand US roughly, and then you know whatever you put on the back. So for under one hundred and twenty grand, yeah. you're rolling out in a pretty good capable vehicle. Yeah. Which when is I, good money in Australia when you consider you, the base model Land Cruiser. What is that US total? Uh, 120, so probably about 90. 90. Yeah, when I see, I mean, I remember when we were in, we were buying Tundras in Libya and mm-hmm. Africa, and we bought a, uh, we were going to buy that series uh, Land Cruiser, and they were 50K oh, yeah, they off, were. The, off the and shelf. They were brand new. Brand new oh. from the Toyota dealership, and I wanted them so bad. Um, and they were just completely stock diesel. Uh, I think they were manual. Yeah, they only yeah. come out as manual. The 70 series are yeah. only manual, hence when I say we, we convert them. The first them, automatic. We, we convert them to automatic, but using the 200 series gearbox, the same gearbox, the AB gearbox, AB60F that's in the Tundra. How, what is the, 
So, uh, what's the locking mechanism? The for shifter the lo- system. Yeah, we it's a Toyota Genuine one as well. It's yeah. a cable system, yeah. but it's all electronically driven. So the cable is just a selector to put it in yeah. the thing, and then the the electronics drive it. So we've got that down pat now. We've done probably ten or eleven of those auto conversions. Mm-hmm. So they're fairly straightforward. Do you do you maintain the electronic lockers in each differential? Um, well, that's an option. I, I'm not a fan of electronic lockers, by yeah. the way. They're the things that can go wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, you know, LSDs or mechanical lockers are pretty good. But it the Toyota diffs are either maintained or we, we replace them at people's expense. Or you can go to an air locker. Yeah. So what's your favorite setup for lockers? I, I'm, I'm either – I'm a fan of the limited slip differentials that come out in the 80 series. Yep. And they do come as a bog standard. Is that considered the center diff? Is that what they yeah, call it? We, in in – the six-wheel drive, the, the center diff is a Ford 9-inch. Yeah. And we put a Eaton mechanical locker in it or a Detroit locker. Yep. That's um, what I have in my Jeep at yeah. Detroit. Um, so I, I everything's subjective when it comes to four-wheel drive. I, my opinion is with six wheels, you only need your lockers when you're going uphill or downhill. And with the extra drive, you don't need them. Yeah. I, I'm a fan you of... You rarely use it then on a correct. six-wheel vehicle. I, I manually lock the hubs when you've got a um, part-time kit. Yeah. And you know your, your front hubs are locked... A, a center diff lock does all the bits and pieces and then the other drive themselves. So hence my vehicle is only LSD. Um, I did have another one that was electric front and rear and you know, go to the same places, but now that I've autoed this one, it's much better. God, I just want, I want to build a six-wheel vehicle here and just show people the true capability of it because I've seen all the videos and I'm like, mm-hmm. man, if people just could see it in North America and go... That thing exists. There's a place that you can get it built. I want one. Then that's all it takes, right? Because it, it there's just it doesn't exist. <sighs> there, there are some people doing it, but I don't think it's. But it's, but a it's very, so niche. I was going to say it's them, a niche yeah. market. It's it, expensive as fuck. Yeah, Australia, as I said, because of the the legal requirements about carrying weight, and we've yeah. we've done a number of them for varying people. You know, one yeah. of them was a, an ex CEO of a highly profile company in Australia, and. He'd done his research, worked out that he, you know, all the trucks and all that, he'd have to buy a truck. Yeah. And his wife wouldn't drive in it. So he's built this touring rig, cost him well over 300000 Australian, but he loves it. He takes it to places he, he wanted to go to, and that's pretty much answered the brief. But when it comes to it, it's all about carrying weight. Yeah. Hence the six-wheel drives. Is, that's its main purpose in life, is to carry lots of shit to lots of places and hopefully get out of there. How many vehicle? How many six wheel vehicles are we going to have in uh, May when we go to Australia? Four, possibly five. Oh fuck! I can't wait. I fucking can't wait, George. We we and we do offer uh, EDM Go Light panel packs for the back of the uh, <laughs> seats. If you guys would uh, be interested, in we'll outfit those. each of those vehicles with uh, the Go the Go Rig. Uh, uh, set up. Yeah. Does it come with a life support system for a fuckwit? Because <laughs> there, there was always one on a trip. A fuckwit or a cunt? No, no, no. The cunts are the good guys. You the remember, fuckwits are the bad cunt guys. Cunt is a term of endearment. A yep. fuckwit. If you're a fuckwit, you're a fuckwit. I'm, I'm gonna, I am gonna write an article <laughs> called "Fuckwit." Yeah. Just, I, I love. I, oh man, I miss Australian humor. Um, I, I it need can a, get you into trouble here, though. Oh, f- oh yeah. dude! If you say if you call anybody a cunt in America, a woman, oh, it's like bad. it's the worst. It's worse than the worst terms combined. Yeah, yeah. There, there is a hot tip. 
Never call your wife a cunt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do not say it. If you ever want to go to jail and Heart belt, pro tip. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> that even in Australia, that's not, not allowed? No, no. It's, yeah, there's, always, there's always a limit. Fuck. You can call a bloke a cunt. I was going to say you call way. your blokes a cunts, but not. Yeah, not your women. You go, to, you go to hell for that. Uh, you know who I, I do have a... Uh, you ever heard of Bram Conley? I I've no, I don't know him personally. I've heard of him. Yes, yeah, he I was just on his podcast a couple yep. a couple of months back, but he'd be a good advocate for for talking about this uh, the PTSD thing because he yeah. we talk about it often, and Bram seems like a really good dude. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of I suppose getting back to the point where I said there's a lot of people trying to to do stuff, and they get mired down. In the bureaucracy of hundred percent, yeah. Charities in Australia are not like charities in the US. It's a yeah. it's a very difficult path, and you know you need money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, hence, you know th- this you know, is all predicated on a couple of things coming off. But at the end of the day, you know there is support out there. Yeah. Yeah, I like. Well, I think it's any kind of thing where you see the good and where you could give back and help with a cause like that. I mean, it's just. That's that's the best business strategy to to set your business up to facilitate you know the the community you came from, which yep. obviously oh it's given would, us all whatever I've got, and I'm sure you guys feel mm-hmm. the same. 100%. You know, oh, we yeah. wouldn't be where we are if we hadn't have had that service, and it it's not wasted. You've got to you've got to pay back at some point. Absolutely, I even though it. they do take their pound of flesh, you, it, yeah. there's people out there that come off of worse, and, yeah, people coming up worse than they went in. So. No, absolutely. That's not a good news story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the thing is, like you just said, I mean, it's it's something that's not on the forefront of people's minds. And and even in the expedition, will it fix anything? No, but it, it it's better than doing nothing. It's it's bringing people together, building a network, and giving them tools as opposed to just leaving them fucking hanging out to dry, which is what the veteran affairs system in America is. And, and Australia's not far behind, and I'm pretty sure the yeah. UK is all in the same boat. I suppose every. Every country's got its problems, and unfortunately, you know, don't start on politics because you never talk politics or religion. But you know, politics in the Western world is very dysfunctional at the moment. Yeah, one hundred percent. And hence, the, the losers are always the guys, or it appears to be the guys that have had to give up something. Yeah. Politicians give up nothing. Fuckwits. Mm-hmm. Fuckwits. Fuck, <laughs> double fuckwit. <laughs> double fuckwits. Yeah. All right, Mick. Uh, hey, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. Where, where can people find uh, all you guys' stuff? I know you guys um, are standing yep, up so Facebook. We're on, we're on Instagram as well. So there's Australian Expedition Vehicles on Instagram and Facebook, Australian Expedition Vehicles. And obviously on the WWYDY thing and AustralianExpeditionVehicles.com. Had a, it, it's a funny story because it's it's all bullshit, but... AEV was taking, so I had to use AustralianExpeditionVehicles.com. So people spell it wrong all the time. Australia's got two A's. Oh, Um, shit. I didn't even know that. I'm looking at it now. I'm like, that's spelled wrong. Wait a minute. That's right. Okay, so it's AustralianExpeditionVehicles.com, A-U-S-T-R-A-L-I-A-N. And then uh, you guys could follow them. Obviously, uh, I follow them on uh, Instagram, so you guys can uh, check them out through there as well. Um, cool, man. Mick, thank you for coming on the podcast, no, man. Pleasure, thank you, sir. You've traveled a long way. To no, be I had a good sleep trip. last night, so it's all good. <laughs> I had good. a breakfast burrito, my first one ever. Ever so. Really? Uh, How'd yeah, you like it? Shit, it was garbage. <laughs> it was gross. Carl Junior, so it was all right. Oh. Are you leaving tomorrow morning? Um, I'll try and leave here tomorrow and head up to Vegas. But yeah, awesome. Did you get any reserves for hotels? Um, I had driven past a couple that I'd eyeballed I'll get on the you, way I'll, here. We'll hook you up. I'll Roger. get you right. I'll get you somewhere proper. Okay. 
Um, and not then we'll, not we'll go the Hotel Six. No, not the Hotel Six. We'll get you no. a nice one tonight. We'll go to a Barley Hound too here in a little okay. bit. Roger. Our favorite restaurant. Done. All right, guys. Uh, hey, guys, if you're just tuning in, uh, this podcast is sponsored by Boss Strong Box. If you're interested in Boss Strong Box, they got aftermarket, uh, you know, all the things that you need to supply and uh, carry all your off-road accessories, tools, guns, um, security lock boxable. Um, on BossStrongBox.com, if you use Philcraft, you actually could save 25%, which is our biggest discount code. Philcraft, one word, saves you 25%. And also Colonel Blades. Colonel Blades is the EDC knife that we use, carry, review, and talk about. My favorite EDC blade is the Colonel Blade NCLO Viz folder. Um, I actually carry that. We don't carry it in-house, but you can get on ColonelBlades.com and actually use Philcraft to get free shipping on any order. Um, Colonel Blades also... Mixed to NCO Lovis, uh, which is the uh, fixed blade, but it's made for everyday carry. It's not just made for, uh, uh, you know, utility and everything else. It's specifically made for everyday carry and defending your life. So if you're interested, check out kernelblades.com. Hey, guys, thanks for tuning in the podcast. Um, here with George and uh, excited to kick this new year off with a whole bunch of great podcasts in the future. Let's get after it. All right. Stay alert. Stay alive. Thanks, guys. Cheers, guys.